And when Christ comes back, whenever that time is, then we will receive the mother load of all the glorifying grace that He has won for us on the cross. So in verses 3 through 10, or primarily down through verse 9, Peter has laid out this incredible hope of the glory, this hope of grace to come, this great inheritance that Christ has won for us. But he also opened the letter by reminding us that we are chosen or elect aliens in this world. We are pilgrims. We're passing through. This is not our homeland. We're just here for a period of time and then we're ultimately aiming towards the glory of the grace that Christ has for us in heaven which we will receive when He comes back or if we die before that. So Peter raises the question then in effect, how are we to live in this world as pilgrims and as aliens on our way to this heavenly inheritance that Christ has for us? And then he moves into the realm of the imperative mood. Where he begins to exhort us in light of the indicative facts of what Christ has won for you. What is yours? What is guaranteed to you? Based on those facts, those gospel facts through Christ's death and resurrection, therefore live this way. The imperative mood of exhortation and commands. And the very first command he gives in verse 13 is prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in light of these, this incredible inheritance, the first command is to fix your mind on that inheritance. Fix your mind on that grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This mother load of grace, this glory, this blessing of, of all that heaven is, has waiting for us. Fix your hope completely upon that. The Old Testament illustration of this, of course, is Israel in the wilderness. Israel on its way to the promised land. And the moving pillar of cloud by day and fire by night was a constant reminder that the wilderness was not their home. They were to live in temporary tents that could be folded up and moved to the next destination. But for 40 years, they wandered throughout the wilderness, always realizing that this was only temporary. That God was leading us to the promised land overflowing with milk and honey. That's the mentality that Peter would have us to understand that we should have too. That we're living in a worldly wilderness in this life ultimately. But this is not our home. We're on our way to God's promised land. John Bunyan captured this truth in his allegory of Pilgrim's Progress when Christian is always on the way to the celestial city. That's his goal. And through all the challenges and all the temptations and all the ups and downs and failures of his life, his aim was to get to the celestial city. And so Peter exhorts us in verse 13, in light of what Christ has waiting for you, fix your hope on that. Your pilgrims, your aliens, your strangers in this life, fix your hope on that glory to come. 
The second thing he begins to tell them to do in light of this inheritance in verse 14 through 16 is to live as obedient children and strive to be holy. Be holy, for God is holy. So now he begins to turn their attention more towards living out the Christian life on a day-to-day basis in the realm of obedience and pursuing holiness of life. Notice in verse 14, the emphasis on obedience. That part of our pilgrimage now as we are on our way to our heavenly inheritance is to live as obedient children. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Obedience should be the description of every believer. By grace, we are children of God, and obedience is one of the marks of being a child of God. John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. So keeping the commandments of God is one of the marks of growing in assurance that we know God. He went on to say in chapter 5 of 1 John, verse 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So Peter reminds us that, look, as you're living the pilgrim life on your way to the celestial city or the great inheritance in heaven that Christ has won for us, live your life as obedient children. That's what you are to be, as obedient children. Now, of course, we live this side of eternity and our obedience will not be flawless. Our obedience will not be perfect. We want it to be, but we will struggle. We will stumble. The direction and desire of our hearts, though, should always be to obey God. But when we fail and when we stumble, when we disobey, then we repent and we come back to the Lord. And this is really the description of the Christian life. We pursue obedience. Sometimes we struggle and falter in our obedience. But then we confess our sin. Luther said, Martin Luther said that sin is like a beard. You shave it off one day and it returns the next. And in many ways that kind of the struggle that we have. It's a battle we have with sin that we'll never get over in this life. It just keeps growing. We have to keep cutting it off. It keeps growing. Unless you grow a beard, which is great as well. But the analogy is like in Galatians 5 verse 17 when Paul says that, you know, the flesh is in opposition to the Spirit and the Spirit to the flesh so that you can't do the things you please. It's a battle. It's a struggle. But nevertheless, the mark of a child of God is we want to obey our Heavenly Father. The reason why we can do this is actually mentioned back up in verse 3. When Peter has told his readers that according to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. A believer has a new nature. We're born again. So the old nature doesn't dominate us or enslave us like it once did. But we have a new nature in Jesus Christ. The contrast between the believer and the unbeliever is that the unbelievers in the Bible are described as children of disobedience. That marks their life to disobey. They disobey God. But a child of God wants to obey his Father in heaven. 
As children, as Peter will say later in chapter 3, we're to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. That's part of our obedience. We recognize I'm not Lord any longer. Christ is Lord. I set Him apart as Lord in my heart. And that results in obedience. He's my Lord. I follow His commands. I want to honor Him. I want to please Him. That's a mark of a child of God. It's also interesting that uh, he goes on to just emphasize this uh, notion of obedience that we're not to be in any way conformed to our previous lusts, the lusts of our flesh, because our flesh is something that uh, will always drag us down. So when we look at the first exhortation in this section is to be obedient children. And then what dominates the next several verses is the call to be holy. To be holy. Notice in verse 15 that this call of holiness is to those who are the called. Look at verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. In other words, this is an exhortation for those who are called by God as children of God to be holy. This calling that we have received by the grace of God was an effectual calling. It's more than just an invitation of the Gospel. Many hear that invitation and say, no, I I won't repent and believe in Jesus Christ. But those who receive this inner call that Peter references here, Paul refers to it a lot, is a divine call that effectually causes the person to come to the light of Christ out of their darkness. Again, later in chapter 2, verse 9, Peter will say that, that God called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's the calling that we have received. By nature, we love the darkness. Like moles that love the darkness of the ground, like bats that only fly at night, we are creatures that love the darkness. And we would never come to the light on our own. We hate the light. But when you're called by God and He calls you out of darkness into His life, we are transformed from being bats that love and fly in the darkness to being eagles that love to to fly in the brightness of the sky with the sun shining. We're called into His light and we love the light. We are called out of darkness into His light. Now, let me say, and also to be clear, this this call to holiness that we have in verse 15 and based on the Scripture, verse 16, is not a call to holiness in order to earn your way to heaven. This is what false religions teach. This is not be ye holy so that you can get yourself to heaven. That's an impossible gospel. No one can do it. Peter is not saying to try to earn your your salvation by being holy. That you've got to be holy or God won't accept you. That is wrong. That's much of what's couched in the Roman Catholic understanding of justification. 
that you've got to develop your own personal righteousness. So hopefully when you die, God will declare you righteous because you are personally righteous. And without that personal righteousness and holiness, you go to purgatory. That is not what the Bible teaches. Salvation is a gift of God. You can never be go to heaven based on your holiness because it's never perfect enough. So how does a sinner get to heaven? Well, we acknowledge, number one, that we are a sinner, that we are unholy, that we are ungodly by nature. And we turn to Jesus Christ who died on the cross and bore our sins and suffered in our place and rose on the third day as proof that He had conquered and paid the full price and penalty for our sin. We put our faith and trust in Him. And then Christ justifies us. The Father justifies us by giving us Christ's own holiness. His perfect holiness. And that's the holiness that is our entrance into heaven. Not our own. This is the holiness, the call to holiness for the believer. Not to earn salvation, but to show that we have been born again. The evidence of being born again. So, what does it mean to be holy? In verse 15, we are exhorted like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What does it mean to be holy? And basically, there are two ideas to holiness. The first one is separation from sin. And the second one is separation unto God. So to be holy, you need those two separations. First off, let's consider the separation from sin. Look back at verse 14 again. As obedient children, so obedience is a mark of a child of God, but he says, do not be conformed to your former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Separate yourself from sin. Don't be conformed to your former lusts. Get away from them. Remove yourself from them. Now the lust that Peter speaks of in verse 14 is more than just sexual lust. It can really be any strong desire or passion forbidden by Scripture. It can refer to all kinds of self-seeking, idolatrous desires where it would be the, the desire for wealth or power or pleasure as an, as an idolatrous desire. So it can be any kind of a lust that we can wrestle with. And Peter makes it clear what our duty is. Don't be conformed to it. Don't let those lusts reach out and wrap its arms around you and pull you into its cage. Rather, fight them. Don't be conformed to them. Resist them. I love what uh, Thomas Watson, one of the old Puritans, said. He said that dead fish float down the stream, but living fish swim against it. To swim against the common stream of evil shows grace to be alive. So don't just float down with your former lusts, which are yours in your ignorance. Don't be conformed to them. Resist them. Fight against them. Swim against them, if you will. I remember reading a quote by Billy Sunday. I don't, I don't think he was much of a theologian, but he, but he did have a healthy resolve to fight against sin. 
And this is what he said in one of his messages. He said, I'm against sin. As long as I have a foot, I'll kick it. As long as I have a fist, I'll fight it. As long as I have a tooth, I'll bite it. And when I'm so old and lame that I can't kick it, and my arm is so tired I can't fight it, and all my teeth have fallen out of my head, then I'll still gum it till the day I die. So he had a commitment to fight against his sin. A commitment, a resolve not to be conformed to his former lusts that were his before he became a Christian. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So Peter is exhorting them to make a break with the old, unregenerate lifestyle. And the reason why we can, again, is because we're a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. By nature, we were children of wrath. But by grace, we are children of God with a new nature. So don't live the way you used to live. Later on in 1 Peter 4, verse 3, Peter will say to his readers, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. He says, that's in your past. That's over with now. Don't be conformed to your former lusts. Stay away from it. Resist it. Fight it. Why? Well, as J.C. Ryle said, our hearts are like tinder. Tinder, you know, the, the dry, flammable material used in starting a fire. The little tinder. He says our hearts are like tinder. And we should diligently keep clear from the sparks of temptation or they will ignite into a blazing fire. So resist those former lusts. And these lusts, he describes in verse 14, were yours in your ignorance. This is one of the strong indications that Peter's readers were Gentiles because he describes their former lifestyle being in ignorance. And that's the way the Jews normally spoke of the Gentiles. Their lifestyle is ignorance. And, uh, and what Peter is emphasizing is that those former lusts that you used to embrace and love and pursue after, they were yours because you were ignorant. You didn't know anything about God. You didn't know what sin was. You didn't know who God was. You didn't know about the day of judgment. You were ignorant. The popular Gentile religions back in that day, of course, were full of ignorance. Polytheism, Emperor worship, the ubiquitous pagan temples with their worship that engaged the service of prostitutes. This is part of the spiritual ignorance that described their religions. The leading philosophies of the Gentile world were also swallowed up in ignorance. We read of Stoicism, whose goal was to minimize pain. And then Epicureanism, whose goal was to maximize pleasure. <clears throat> Again, they were caught up in, in ignorance. And all these false religions, the best they could produce is religions and philosophies that didn't know anything of eternal value. Totally ignorant. Paul in Ephesians 4 emphasizes the same 
thing when he speaks to the Gentiles at Ephesus. And he says that you shouldn't walk as you used to walk. In the futility of your mind. Now just notice the emphasis on the ignorance. The futility of your mind. Being darkened in your understanding. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the hardness of their heart. Like four times he just expresses that the Gentile world was, was caught up in nothing but spiritual ignorance. And that's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural man, the man who is unsaved, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Because there is an ignorance that is bone deep. An ignorance that is consumed with this black hardness of heart that paralyzes them towards anything that honors God. And this really describes today all unbelievers. No matter how many PhDs they might have, no matter how much street smart they might have, no matter how witty they are, yet in the things of God, the things that matter most, they are ignorant. So Peter is saying to his readers who have come to faith in Christ, make that separation between you and your previous lifestyle. Don't be conformed to those former lusts. Don't go running after unbelievers and and buying into their philosophies or their values. Don't go to unbelievers to solve your spiritual problems. Don't run off to unbelievers thinking that they have... The inside understanding on scientific knowledge and data. Because everything they see, they see through colored glasses that distorts the reality of what things really are. So the first thing about holiness that Peter emphasizes is to be separate from sin. To be holy, we've got to continually fight the fight of our sin nature, which we still have, by the way, in the flesh. Fight it. Resist it. Don't be conformed to it. And then the second part of holiness is to be separated unto God. And this is what he emphasizes in verse 15 and 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. So holiness involves more than just separating from sin. Just like if you want to make a loaf of bread, it involves far more than removing the husks from the grain. That's part of it. That's the first part. The second part is now you take the grain and you devote it to something that's good. You grind it, you make a loaf of bread out of it, that's a blessing. So you need both sides of this. So Peter now emphasizes that not only should you fight the fight and don't be conformed to your former lusts, but also be holy yourself in all your behavior. Now this involves, number one, imitating God's holiness. Notice in verse 15, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself. So we're to be holy like God is holy. We're to imitate God's holiness. And as children of God, 
we should seek to be like our holy God, our heavenly Father. Uh, Paul emphasizes this emphatically in Ephesians 5 verse 1 when he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. So the second part of holiness is to be imitators of God. To strive to be holy because our God is holy. God is infinitely holy. Perfectly holy. And His holiness really sums up the totality of all of His divine perfections. That's what makes God holy. You take all that He is and all of His incredible perfections and attributes and that makes God holy. He is separate from His creation. So that the word, the concept of holiness for God speaks to the fullness of what makes Him God. He is described as being majestic in holiness by Moses in Exodus 15. And He alone really is holy. And the seraphim acknowledge this in Isaiah 6 when they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. God is holy. He is perfect. He is flawless. He is infinite and eternal in all of His attributes. He is holy in everything He does because that is His nature. And so we're exhorted to be holy in verse 15 in all our behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So Peter is quoting now from the Old Testament. So his exhortation, and this is a good, a good thing to learn, that when you need guidance in how to live the Christian life, you go back to the Word of God, right? And that's what Peter is doing. He quotes in verse 16 from several passages out of the book of Leviticus. You shall be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord God. So this is from the law of God. Peter is basing it again on Scripture. And what he's saying, remember, he's writing primarily to Gentiles. So he's saying that you Gentile believers have now entered into the new covenant with believing Jews as the new covenant Israel of God. So Israel's law now becomes your law. Their law to be holy now becomes your law to be holy. Because Gentiles are grafted in to that new Israel of God established by Christ in the new covenant. So Peter turns to Scripture and he tells them how to live as pilgrims. So that the Scriptures become our guide. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So we have the Word of God to guide us. And the Word of God tells us that God wants us to be holy. Again, not to earn our salvation but because we have been saved and we want to please the God who has saved us. So strive to be holy. Don't think you're going to get to heaven by being holy. The Scriptures help us to become holy and to live a separate life unto God by telling us what God hates and what God delights in. You don't know that unless you're in the Word of God. The Scriptures will help us to be successful in our battles with sin and help us to desire to please God more when we're in the Word of God and the Spirit of God is ministering it to our hearts. 
so that we need the continual ministry of Scripture. And I love it why Peter is quoting from the law of God here because that's our pattern. That's our commandment to be holy for God is holy. There's much in the Mosaic law that no longer applies because it was fulfilled in Christ. The ceremonial law, for example. But the moral law of God is eternal. And Peter is quoting from the moral law of God. And it still applies to us today. Now notice the necessity of holiness in our salvation. It's necessary because holiness is both the goal of your election and also the necessary evidence of our election. That's why it's not, we can't just make it optional whether we strive to be holy or not. First off, it's the goal of our election. Remember in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless in Him. So we have been chosen for the goal of being holy and blameless before the Lord. And that process begins at salvation, is continued through sanctification, and consummated in glorification. But that is our goal, to be holy. It's not optional. It's something that, that is built into our salvation is to make us holy. And the author of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says it's, it's, it's also essential. He says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If we don't attain to some level of holiness in the Christian life, it's an indication that we don't belong to God. So again, holiness is an essential mark. Again, not to try to earn my salvation by being holy. But by being holy, I'm showing that God's grace is in my heart, that I've been born again, that I'm His child. So it's the evidence that the Holy Spirit is in me if I pursue after holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And he's talking about practical holiness in that verse. Notice back in verse 15, this holiness is to be in all your behavior. In all areas of life. There's no area of your life that you should not consciously seek to live out a holy life in. Whether it's at work, or at play, or family life, or church life. We're to always be mindful of seeking to be separated from sin and separated unto God for His honor and His glory. And that's how you should live your life and how I should live my life. We need God's help to do that for sure because it's a battle with our flesh and wants to turn us in the opposite direction. But He's emphasizing, look, don't just pick and choose which areas you're going to serve God in. Serve God and be holy in all areas of your life. In all of your behavior. That's what the Lord wants of us. And having said that, I want to be realistic again, knowing that it is a battle for holiness. And our holiness will always be imperfect. We're to be like our Father, though the best we can attain to in this life is an obscure reflection that's flawed and imperfect. 
We can't be as holy as God is holy. He's infinitely holy. He's eternally holy. And as His children, I want to be holy, but until I'm glorified, I still wrestle daily with my flesh, my sin nature. So it's going to be a battle. And just remember that a holy life is not a sinless life, but a life by the grace of God that sins less. It's not sinless, but it sins less as God's grace is working in our life. Our holiness, the fact that it will be imperfect, is not an excuse to live sloppy lives. For our Heavenly Father in love will discipline us as His children. He will discipline us in love if we don't pursue after Him. And it's interesting in Hebrews 12, the goal of that discipline is for our good so that we may share His holiness. So even God's discipline is designed to make us more separate from sin and separated unto God. So what are the marks of holiness practically in our life? Well, there are a great many of them, but I want to mainly just kind of focus for a second on one. And that is, in verse 16, when God says to us, you shall be holy for I am holy. Who's speaking? God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit? Well, I think for us, probably the best way to look at this and maybe think about this is that it's Jesus Christ who is saying this to us. You shall be holy for I am holy. When you look at Jesus Christ, you see the perfection of holiness in human form. Jesus was fully God, fully man, without sin, two natures in one person. But no one was holy like Jesus Christ. So in effect, when Christ says, you shall be holy for I am holy, it's a call to Christ-likeness. It's a call to imitate our Savior because He is holy. He lived out holiness on this earth. We can see it. We can read about it. We can study it. We can, we can observe and watch how holiness lives out its life in the life of Jesus Christ. And as we grow in that holiness and Christ-likeness, one of the great marks of holiness will be our humility. Our humility. Andrew Murray said, the chief mark of counterfeit holiness is its lack of humility. So as we draw closer to the light of Christ's holiness, we will inevitably become all the more aware of our own sinfulness and our unholiness, even as a believer. The closer you get to the strength of the light, the darker the shadow is behind you. And there's a sense in which the more holy we become, the more aware we are of our own sinfulness and how much more we need Christ. There's something about the beauty of Jesus Christ in His love and mercy and forgiving heart towards us 
something about the beauty of Christ's grace and mercy that often reveals the ugliness of our own hearts that should result in greater humility. If you look at Jesus Christ, there is none more holy than Christ. If you look at Jesus Christ, there is none more humble than Jesus Christ. Who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled Himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Holiness is best seen by humility. And the closer we see the holiness of Christ, the greater humility it will produce within us. I don't know if you've ever read the novel The Hunchback of Notre Dame, I think is the right way to say it, by Victor Hugo. But there's a beautiful illustration of this principle found in that book. I don't know if it's in the book or in one of the screen renditions of the story. But you remember the hunchback was called Quasimodo. And he was a deformed bell ringer of the Notre Dame Cathedral. He was born with a great, huge, ugly hump on his back and a giant wart that covered his left eye and this whole side of his face. He was looked upon by the townspeople as a sort of a monster, hideous, a creation of the devil. And yet, nevertheless, he had a very tender, kind heart. Quasimodo, from a distance one day, saw a beautiful gypsy dancer and fell in love with her. She was infatuated with a handsome captain, but as the story unfolds with many twists and turns, Quasimodo captured her to save her from harm. And when once he had her safely away from the danger, she looked at him And he looked at her and immediately turned away and started weeping. And she asked him, why are you weeping in tears? And Quasimodo turned to this beautiful young lady. And he said, I never knew how ugly I was until I saw how beautiful you are. And standing in the presence of that beauty made him realize the depth of his own deformity and ugliness. And the principal lesson from this, I believe, is as we draw closer to Christ and gaze upon the beauty of His holiness, it reveals all the more the ugliness and shame of our sin, which would cause us to be more humble to cause us to be more in love with Him and draw us closer to Him because of His grace and forgiveness and mercy given to us. One of the greatest marks of holiness is not pride. Pride in theology. Pride in my righteousness. That's the Pharisees who had the attitude of holier than thou. That's not holiness. Holiness is humility. Holiness is saying that Christ is beautiful 
Christ is lovely. Christ is precious. And in light of Him, I see my sin and my unworthiness. But then I can rejoice in His grace and mercy and love. The humility of holiness makes us reach out to the lowly and the despised. The humility of holiness makes us minister to the weak and the infirm. We do not stand aloof. For the holiest man who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ, was known to be the friend of sinners. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. He touched the leper and cleansed the leper. He ministered to the social outcasts. He was the most holiest man of all. And He was the most humble man of all. A battered reed He will not break off. A smoldering wick He would not put out. Humility is one of the great marks of Christ. It's one of the great marks of true holiness. The sight of the holiness of Christ is the sight that sanctifies. It changes us. When you see God truly in His holiness, when you see Christ in His holiness, it changes us. So that we want to be separate from sin. We want to be separated unto God because of the grace that has opened our eyes to see and rejoice and worship Him for He is holy. I want to conclude by just emphasizing again the impact that the holiness of God had upon Isaiah the prophet. Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6 as we wrap up our study this morning. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is given a rare privilege to see a vision of the majesty of God on His throne. And He records for us in verse 1, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings, with two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of one who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah was ushered into the throne room of God and there he saw God in His holiness And how did that impact him? How did it change him? Well, first we see it caused a separation from his sin. Look at what he says in verse 5. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So once he sees the beauty of God's holiness, it immediately impacted him as he saw his own sinfulness. And he cried out, Woe is me! pronounced a curse on himself. 
I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. And maybe that conviction was because of the way he, the words that had come out of his mouth has, had defiled him on many occasions. But he humbled himself, being aware of his own sin, and he renounced his sin by saying, Woe is me, for I am ruined. And then we find that verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So being made aware of his sin and his humility in the presence of a holy God, he renounced it. He confessed it. And he received the forgiveness, the burning tongs of the coal that touched his lips. A sign, a picture of the forgiveness that he received because of his repentance and trust in the Lord. So the first mark of holiness of God, seeing the holiness of God is a desire to be separated from our sin. You see that clearly in this passage. And then secondly, this desire to be separated unto God, to serve God with my life. And we see that in verse 8. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? There's a reference probably to the Trinity right there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. Separation unto God. A desire to live for God. A desire to be separated from sin. But not just that, but a desire to live for God. To be separated unto God for His honor and for His glory, for His name. That it's about Him, it's not about me. And so you see that this great prophet of God grew in his holiness as he saw and gazed upon the holiness of God which caused him to be separated from sin and separated unto God. Holiness will never be fashionable in our world. It will never be stamped with the approval of the secular media. It will never be praised in the government-run institutions of higher learning. Most people will despise you for being holy because in their nose, it's obnoxious. And yet God desires that His children be obedient and to be holy. Living as close to Christ as we can. Imitating His holiness and His humility as we see the beauty of all that Christ is as our holy Savior and Lord. May God give us that grace as obedient children, as pilgrims in this world, fixing our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As we're on our way to glory, let us seek to live obedient lives and holy lives Because our God is holy. And may God help us to be separated from sin and separated unto God. Let's close in prayer.
Our Father, we thank You, Lord, for this exhortation from the Apostle Peter who wants these children of God to live up according to their high calling in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we live our lives in this world, which is very unholy, as we live our lives as pilgrims and chosen aliens and strangers on our way to the promised land, we pray, Lord, that Your Spirit, Your Holy Spirit, would work in our hearts to make us more holy. Lord, for the sins that we wrestle with, help us to renounce them. Help us to resist them. Help us to turn away from them. But Lord, for the glory of God, help us to turn toward You. To desire to live a life that pleases You. To make that our highest ambition. To live for Your glory. To renounce our own self-idolatry. And declare that God and God alone is my Lord. So Lord, do Your work in our hearts and make us holy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.